Hello. Welcome. I am Milena Kalinowska and in charge of the public programs here at the Hejon Museum. Welcome again to the Hejon Museum and Sculpture Garden for the lecture by Michael Fried entitled Sugimoto's Vision, in which he will discuss the artist's work in the context of new photography, which includes artists such as Bent and Hilla Becker, Jeff Wall, Thomas Roof, Andreas Gurski, Thomas Demand, and others who are well represented also in the Hejon collection. Michael Fried is an influential modernist critic and historian. He is currently G.R. Herbert Bone Professor of Humanities and Art History at Job Hopkins Universities. He has written numerous essays, 27 of them are published in his book, Art and Objecthood, in 1998, including the introduction to the catalog, The Three American Painters, the text of his book, Morris Lewis, and the renowned Art and Objecthood. Originally published, these essays were between 1962 and 77, and continue to generate debate until today. In more recent years, Michael Fried has written several long and complex histories of modern art, most famously on Edouard Manet and Gustave Courbet. Michael Fried is also a poet, having written The Next Band in the Road and To the Center of the Earth. He is currently writing a book entitled Ontological Pictures, The Artist of the Recent Photography. The Hirshhorn Museum would like to thank a friend of the Hirshhorn Public Programs for the support provided for this public lecture. A little bit about our future programs. Hirshhorn Museum After Hours will take place on March 30th. The galleries will open until 8.30 and program will include performance by Richard Chartier and Taylor Dupree, who are sound performance artists. Kerry Brower, the co-curator of the Hiroshi Sugimoto exhibition, and the chief curator will give a tour of Sugimoto exhibition. We will also be screening masterwork of early Japanese cinema entitled The Water Magician from 1933, which will start at this auditorium at eight o'clock. Hiroshi Sugimoto will be present. Another important major event will take place here with Oliver Herring, his performance is entitled Task, and it's interactive art event in which 60 participants from various backgrounds in this area will perform on April 29th. The program will start at noon and will continue until 9.30 in the evening. It will include discussion with the artist and the curator, Kristen Heilman, and participants, as well as reception will be offered. I would like also to remind you that Hirshhorn offers on its website podcasts of different walks and discussions with artists. The Sugimoto walkthrough through his own exhibition is available, and the podcast produced today will be available in one week. Let's welcome Michael Fried. Okay, we can start to darken um, the hall, please. 
Uh, during the past seven or eight years, the Hirshhorn has put on several magnificent exhibitions of work by contemporary photographers and video artists from which I've learned a great deal. Jeff Wall, Douglas Gordon, and now Hiroshi Sugimoto, and it's a great personal honor to have been invited to speak here today. I'll also say just a little bit about Kerry Brower, um, a top curator here and one of the co-curators of the Sugimoto exhibition. Um, I came to photography uh, later than almost anybody else I know in the art world, and um, I've profited, I've been educated uh, by various generous friends, and no one has been more generous uh, than Kerry. In fact, I first learned about Sugimoto's very existence through him. Okay, I'm gonna take it as more or less self-evident that one overriding question, perhaps the overriding question, raised by Sugimoto's photographic oeuvre concerns its relation to minimalism, also conceptualism, but to my mind, principally minimalism. This is hardly news. Quote, Sugimoto left his native Japan in 1970 to study art in Los Angeles at a time when minimalism and conceptual art, both of which informed his work, reigned, unquote. Thomas Krenz writes in the catalog to an exhibition of Sugimoto's work at the Deutsche Guggenheim in Berlin in 2000. At greater length, Kerry Brower, one of the two curators of the present exhibition, writes in his catalog essay of the young Sugimoto's awareness of certain photographic developments of the first half of the 1970s, such as the early color work of Stephen Shore and Joel Sternfeld, both of whom photographed the American environment with large format cameras. Brower goes on to say that Sugimoto also knew the work of Lee Friedlander and others who, and now this is Brower, who had allowed their own shadows or reflections to creep into the photographic frame thereby reminding the viewer of the artist's presence in collapsing the distance between the maker and the subject, between the camera and the world. For Sugimoto, however, the question was not one of self-reflexivity, of referring to himself, but of reconsidering photography's relationship to our perception of the world. Photography and human perception were not two different things. Rather, photography was simply an extension of our way of processing the world, and it always had been, even before the invention of the medium. Linking the photographer and the camera with the world beyond the lens echoed certain investigations by visual artists of the time, in particular minimalists such as Donald Judd and Dan Flavin, and earthwork artists Robert Smithson and Walter de Maria. For them, art was not separate from the world, but was one with it. Indeed, art was literally made out of the stuff of the world, out of light or earth, and was defined by, and in turn defined, the space around it. As early as 1959, for example, Judd had referred to the Chinese artist Dao Qi, who achieved, quote, the whole or oneness, unquote. For Judd, quote, the thing as a whole, its quality as a whole, is what is interesting, unquote Judd, unquote Brower. Then there is this from an interview by Martin Herbert, the topic is Sugimoto's photos of movie theaters with their central illuminated screens, and we'll be looking at some of these in a minute. Quote, their central motif, Herbert says, is a white rectangle. So this is an interview with Sugimoto. Their central motif is a white rectangle. Was that a reference to the minimalist tradition? Sugimoto replies, yes, trying to express this blankness. I was very influenced by Carl Andre Dan Flavin. The simplest forms have authority, like a blank white light. And how do you photograph that? You need a framework to make it visible, unquote. 
And I add, the framework, of course, is the movie theaters themselves. And here is Nancy Spector from an essay called Reinventing Realism from the Deutsche Guggenheim Catalog, another long quotation. As nearly abstract studies of atmospheric properties, a slow mist veils a horizon, a cloudless night illuminates a cresting wave, the seascapes bespeak Sugimoto's early attraction to minimalism while he was an art student in Los Angeles during the early 1970s. The highly abbreviated imagery in which subtle nuance supersedes sharp detail attains its full effect when the photographs are viewed collectively. The minimalist adage, quote, one thing after another, unquote, that's Don Judd. The minimalist adage, one thing after another, initially employed to articulate the inherent seriality of repetitive form as an aesthetic statement, is particularly apt here. When encountered in clusters, one image following another, the horizon line extends beyond the picture frame and functions as a geometricizing link, joining faraway lands and discrete environments. The impact of the seascapes is cumulative, an endless horizon, vast expanses of water and air, and an uncompromising stillness offer a glimpse of what infinity might look like. And I will simply add that that is precisely, I mean, with a vengeance, how the seascapes are hung in the present exhibition. Now, further examples might be offered, but you get the idea. Let me use these citations to say just a bit more about minimalism before moving on to Sugimoto and his art. Now, as some of you are bound to be aware, I don't quite qualify as a neutral observer in this regard. In my essay, Art and Objecthood, which appeared in Art Forum in 1967 and has since been reprinted many times, I launched a no-holds-barred attack against minimalism, or as I also called it, literalism, on the grounds of what I termed its theatricality. More precisely, with the rise of minimalism in the early and mid-1960s, there took place an abrupt shift away from the high modernist insistence on the supreme value of the individual painting or sculpture, which the beholder was left to come to terms with as best he or she could, to the construction of situations, a key notion in my essay, comprising at least the minimalist object, characteristically simple, unitary, a strong gestalt in Robert Morris's phrase, the thing as a whole, its quality as a whole in Donald Judd's formulation. The gallery interior in which it was encountered, ordinarily an empty white cube as Brian O'Doherty would later write, and the incarnate mobile experiencing subject, the beholder, more than a beholder, for whom the situation in its entirety a situation it is worth stressing that included the subject himself or herself was in effect the work. To quote Robert Morris, as I did in Art and Objecthood, and this is Morris now, the better new work takes relationships out of the work and makes them a function of space, light, and the viewer's field of vision. The object is but one of the terms in the newer aesthetic. It is in some way more reflexive because one's awareness of oneself existing in the same space as the work is stronger than in previous work with its many internal relationships. One is more aware than before that he himself is establishing relationships as he apprehends the object from various positions and under varying conditions of light and spatial context. And this is in part, this is me now, what Kerry Brower means when he says that art for the minimalists 
also for Smithson and de Maria, quote, was not separate from the world but was one with it, unquote, and that the art in question, quote, was defined by and in turn defined the space around it, unquote. Simply put, I felt strongly that the minimalist literalist position was a disaster, an interesting disaster, a highly intelligent and arresting one, and of course a hugely influential one, but a disaster nonetheless. To begin with, I argued that it was based on an incorrect understanding of the internal dialectic of modernist painting, one that ironically was all too faithful to the great modernist art critic Clement Greenberg's reductionist arguments, reductionist theories about how modernism worked. Roughly, Greenberg maintained that modernism in each art advanced by a process of internal self-criticism, a continual testing that again and again discarded unnecessary con conventions until at last a particular art arrived at its absolutely core, necessary, and constitutive conventions. In the case of painting, flatness and the delimitation of flatness. The point about these, flatness and the delimitation of flatness for Greenberg, was that they represented the irreducible literal basis of painting as an art. Thus, as he wrote, a length of bare canvas tacked up on a wall already existed as a picture, though not necessarily a successful one, he added. In other words, the implication of Greenberg's account was that the evolution of modernist painting led ineluctably to the discovery, the laying bare of its literal basis, from which it was a natural step for the minimalists to conclude that it was not just possible but indeed desirable to go beyond painting, which after all offered at best a pretty weak instance of literalness, a piece of canvas on a wall, into the realm of projected literalism as such, literalness as such, by means of the unitary shapes and forms, the strong gestalts, the things as wholes advocated by Judd and Morris. Can we make anything darker so that these images show up better? Great, no one minds that, right? I mean, darkness is good. <laughs> and I'm putting Tony Smith's die, 1962, a six foot high, wide, and deep cube, today in the collection of the National Gallery across the mall. It remains the archetypal minimalist, literalist work. And against it, to make the contrast with high modernism as strong as possible. I'll put Morris Lewis's 14 feet wide Alpha Pi of 1960 in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, one of his ravishing unfurls. Another basic minimalist literalist principle, consistent with the turn away from complex internal structures, was an appeal to principles of order that were absolutely simple. One of these, alluded to by Nancy Spector in the quotation I read to you a few minutes ago, was mere repetition quote, one thing after another, as Donald Judd put it. Still another, even more basic idea, was what I've already described as the replacement of the high modernist painting or sculpture whose meaning was a function of its internal relationships by comprehensive open-ended situations involving the minimalist literalist object, the gallery environment, and the mobile embodied experiencing subject for whom in effect the experience itself was the work. This emphasis on experience, or rather this insistence that experience so cheaply conceived was all that art can and should offer, seemed to me disastrous, as I've said. And my term for the overall effect sought by this misconceived address to the viewer subject was and is theatricality. 
One last point worth stressing is that minimalist literalist work also characteristically involved an emphasis on sheer duration, going on and on, for the simple reason that the mode of experiencing I've just evoked was, of course, temporally open-ended and, in principle, endless. Against such duration, such endlessness, I associated high modernist art with something like an illusion of instantaneousness. Quote, as though, I wrote in Art and Objecthood, as though if only one were infinitely more acute, a single infinitely brief instant would be long enough to see everything, to experience the work in all its depth and fullness, to be forever convinced by it, unquote. And I had works like Lewis's Unfurls in mind also Anthony Caro's welded steel sculptures, uh, when I wrote those words. Now, there's more than this to the minimalist literalist intervention, but I think we're now in a position to tackle the question of the relation of Sugimoto's work to minimalism with which I began. In the time left to me, I'm going to do this by, I, I, I'll be able to no more than sketch an answer by focusing in turn on three major series. First, the movie theaters, then the waxwork portraits, and finally, the 33 photos of the Thousand and One Buddhas in the temple of Sanjuzangendo in Kyoto, Japan, together with a short video by Sugimoto based on those photos. Now, Sugimoto began to make the photographs of movie theaters in the mid-1970s, while he was still photographing dioramas in museums of natural history. And he continued to make them for another 25 years. The movie theaters are dated 1975 to 2001 in the Hirshhorn catalog. And I'm showing you two of these Radio City Music Hall, New York of 1978 on the left and Cabot Street Cinema, Massachusetts, 1978 on the right. Um, they are, of course, enormously blown up in these slides. Um, the movie theaters uh, in their classic form are quite small, as you can see from upstairs. Also in the catalog, Sugimoto provides a brief introductory statement to the movie theater photos as follows. This is Sugimoto. I am a habitual self-interlocutor. One evening, while taking photographs of dioramas at the American Museum of Natural History, I had a near hallucinatory vision. My internal question and answer session went something like this. Suppose you shoot a whole movie in a single frame. The answer, you get a shining screen. Immediately, I began experimenting in order to produce this vision. One afternoon, I walked into a cheap cinema in the East Village with a large format camera. As soon as the movie started, I fixed the shutter at a wide open aperture. When the movie finished two hours later, I clicked the shutter closed. That evening, I developed the film and my vision exploded before my eyes. In other words, the dazzling blankness, the sheer whiteness of the screens in the movie theater photographs are the result of leaving the shutter open throughout an entire film. By the same token, there was just enough reflected light from the screens to make possible the relatively dark but also marvelously detailed registration of the theater interiors themselves. Now, I have no wish to challenge the veracity of Sugimoto's account of how he came to make the movie theater photos. But we should note that it presents his doing so as the result of a solitary, brilliant intuition, as if the photos sprang more or less fully conceived out of his questioning mind, and thus had nothing whatever to do with anything else taking place in photography at approximately the same moment. Maybe this is indeed how the photos came to be made. 
But the fact remains that the second half of the 1970s also saw at least two other initiatives in art photography that engaged head-on with the question of the cinema. And I want to suggest that unless these initiatives are acknowledged in this connection, our grasp of Sugimoto's achievement in the movie theater photos risks being curiously bloodless, acontextual, cut off from the contemporary history of which it was a part. As you may have guessed, I'm referring to the early work of Cindy Sherman and Jeff Wall. Cindy Sherman first. The works I have in mind are her famous untitled film stills, which she made between 1977 and 1980. I'm talking about the first group, the black and white ones, which still seem to me to this day the heart of her achievement. I'm showing you number 14 on the left and number 21 on the right. We'll look at some more in a moment. Like Sugimoto's movie theaters, the untitled film stills are in black and white, and also like the movie theaters, they're modest in scale. They are, of course, not real film stills, but photos imitating the look and feel of film stills. And in all the images, a grand total of 84, the protagonist is Cindy Sherman herself, or rather one or another female character whom Sherman is playing or impersonating. In all the photos, she's alone. No one else appears. There is by now an enormous critical literature on Sherman's work, much of it, to my mind, theoretically overblown and more than a little beside the point. But here are some interesting remarks by Sherman herself. I liked the Hitchcock look, Antonioni, neorealist stuff. What I didn't want were pictures showing strong emotion. In a lot of movie photos, the actors look cute, impish, alluring, distraught, frightened, tough, and so on and so forth. But what I was interested in, in was when they were almost expressionless, which was rare to see. In film stills, there's a lot of overacting because they're trying to sell the movie. The movie isn't necessarily funny or happy, but in these publicity photos, if there's one character, she's smiling. It was in European film stills that I'd find women who are more neutral. And maybe the original films were harder to figure out as well. I found that more mysterious. I looked for it consciously. I didn't want to ham it up. And I knew that if I acted too happy or too sad or scared, if the emotional quotient was too high, the photograph would seem campy. One way of paraphrasing this might be to say that by her own account, despite the fact that she was in effect performing for the camera, dressing up, making up, arranging the scene, and finally playing a role, Sherman at the same time felt impelled to try to avoid displays of emotion, and by implication entire scenes that might strike the viewer as theatrical in the pejorative sense of the term. Accordingly, in most of the film stills, she depicts characters who appear lost in thought or feeling. You can see that the two images on the screen, or who look off screen in a manner that suggests that their attention has been arrested, however fleetingly, by something or someone to be found there. That's number 10 on the left. Or who gaze close up at their own image in a mirror, number two. Or who are viewed from the rear or the side, that's number 39 or at a considerable distance from the camera, number 44, or other, under other circumstances that rule out the possibility of any implied communication between the viewer and the personage in question. And I'm showing you number 11 on the left and number 15 on the right. Now, these and similar behavioral motifs 
were frequently deployed by 18th and 19th century French painters in the interest of anti-theatricality. And here I am implicitly referring to my books, Absorption in Theatricality, Courbet's Realism, and Manet's Modernism, where I study this entire tradition with respect to these issues. But I want to stop short of characterizing Sherman's untitled film stills as anti-theatrical tout court, pure and simple for the simple reason that it isn't clear to me, not yet anyway, what such a claim can mean in the realm of photography or indeed in that of cinema, and therefore a fortiori in the realm of a mode of photography that openly presents itself as parasitic, if not on cinema itself, then on a particular cinematic artifact, the film still. But even on the basis of these few remarks, which is to say without subjecting Sherman's untitled film stills to further analysis, which they richly deserve, I hope it's clear that a strongly anti-theatrical impulse is at work in them in interesting ways, which is to say that they are something other than the sort of unproblematic emblems of postmodern appropriationism and indeed postmodern theatricality that they have usually and unreflectively been taken to be. As for Jeff Wall, the other major figure I want to cite in this connection, he made his first light box transparency the destroyed room in 1978. From the outset, his art has involved triangulating between photography, painting, and cinema, as he has made clear in numerous essays and interviews. And a particularly splendid example of this is a wonderful, large photograph called Morning Cleaning, Mies van der Rohe Foundation, Barcelona of 1999, whose cinematic character is pretty much self-evident. I will just add a plug and say I'll be lecturing on it in a symposium on the everyday at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore on April 21st. Jeff Wall will actually be there speaking that same day. In fact, in Wall's recently published catalog resume, all his works are characterized either as documentary or cinematographic photographs, the latter term implying some measure of preparation of the motif, some staging, so to speak. As in Sherman's case, only more so, the question of the exact scope and nature of Wall's exploitation of movies and the thought of movies is an immense topic, one that lies well beyond the scope of this talk. But one early work has particular relevance to Sugimoto's movie theaters. I mean Wall's movie audience of 1979. It comprises seven portraits, each about one meter high and one meter wide, assembled in three light boxes, with one family and two couples. So you're seeing one couple on the left, then a family, and now I'll give you another couple on the left. They're all shown together when they're shown in three units. By particular relevance, I mean that whereas Sugimoto's movie theaters with their blank screens are in almost all cases completely devoid of audiences, the theaters are empty in other words, Wall's movie audience purports to be a representation of members of such an audience, although we don't for a moment imagine that these personages are actually watching a movie under ordinary conditions. In 1984, to accompany an exhibition of this work in Basel, Wall wrote a tortuously complex text of several pages in a post-Marxist quasi-Adorno-esque idiom of a sort that has pretty much disappeared from his writing. Um, and this is going to be difficult. I will just add parenthetically something that uh, anyone here familiar with Wall's work doesn't need to be told, and that is that he is an absolutely brilliant uh, writer, 
um, and I think has done probably the most brilliant writing on photography that anyone's ever done. Anyway, uh, this is an early piece, and one paragraph will give you the flavor of the whole. Wall now. When we go to the cinema, we enter a theater, or what remains of a theater, which has been reinstalled in a monumentalizing machine. The huge fragmented figures projected on the screen are the magnified shards of the outmoded thespians. This implies that the film spectator has also become a fragment of society, which, is, which acquires identity through its repetitious accumulation. In this process, it becomes an audience. The audience is not watching the product of a machine. It is inside a machine and is experiencing the phantasmagoria of that interior. The audience knows this, but it knows it through the labor of trying to forget it. This amnesia is what is known culturally as pleasure and happiness. On the other hand, the utopia of the cinema consists in the ideal of happy, pleasant lucidity which would be created by the revolutionary negation and transformation of amnesiac and monumentalizing cultural forms. Cinematic spectatorship is a somnambulistic approach toward utopia. Whatever else it is, it's brilliant. At the risk of simplifying Wall's thought, we may note first that the issue of theater, hence theatricality, is definitely in play. And second, that Wall is struck by the fact that a movie audience, as one might say, loses itself, or perhaps more accurately, <coughs> forgets itself in the experiencing of a movie, or at any rate seeks to do so. Wall, the audience, knows that it is inside the experiencing machine, but it knows it through the labor of trying to forget it. Thus, the utopia of the cinema, which has not been achieved, would be to convert this forgetting into a kind of, quote, happy, pleasant lucidity, unquote, about the whole experience, a lucidity that would not simply be a form of distancing and alienation. And Wall associates the latter conditions, distancing and alienation, with what he calls critical modernism. Brecht and Godard would be the models here, not Lewis or Caro. As for movie audience itself, Wall says that he tried to make it, quote, anticipate, even evoke, its own moment of trial and occlusion as modernist art, its own transformation into tyrannical decor, and I say, in other words, its own conscription to an experiential regime of immersion and forgetting. Wall again. This is greatly facilitated by the lighting technology used to make the piece, which itself induces a kind of primal specular fascination or absorption which is in some ways antithetical to the conditions of reflective and artificial estrangement, indispensable to the unhappy lucidity of critical modernism." Unquote. Okay. I want, just for a second, to glance briefly at, at some remarks about movies that appear in art and objecthood, um, where I make the claim that modernist art works by a kind of overcoming, defeating of theater and theatricality. That's the central issue for high modernism. It is the overcoming of theater that modernist sensibility finds most exalting and that it experiences as the hallmark of high art in our time. I wrote in that essay. There is, however, one art that by its very nature escapes theater entirely, the movies. This helps explain why movies in general, including frankly appalling ones, are acceptable to modernist sensibility, whereas all but the most successful painting, sculpture, music, and poetry is not. Because cinema escapes theater, automatically, as it were, 
It provides a welcome and absorbing refuge to sensibilities at war with theater and theatricality. At the same time, the automatic guaranteed character of the refuge, more accurately the fact that what is provided is a refuge from theater and not a triumph over it, absorption not conviction, means that the cinema, even at its most experimental, is not a modernist art. Okay, today I wouldn't want to stand behind the passage's final conclusion, but my basic claim that the absorption or engrossment of the movie audience sidesteps, mechanically avoids the very issue of theatricality, still seems to me right, and it's very close, I think, to, Wall's, to what Wall's characterization of the movie audience uh, to Wall's characterization of the movie audience as at once, quote, inside a machine and as experiencing the phantasmagoria of that interior. All this leads me to suggest that one way of understanding Sherman's untitled film stills, Wall's movie audience, and in the end, Sugimoto's movie theaters, is as responding in different ways to the problematic status of movies in this regard. And let me, well, I'll leave this up for the moment by making photographs which, although mobilizing one or another convention of movies or of the thought of movies, also provide a certain essentially photographic distance from the filmic experience. A distance by virtue of which the automaticity of the avoidance of theatricality I've just evoked is itself undone. This means that the issue of theatricality is allowed to come into focus as rarely as the case in film as such, and even to be engaged with as a problem though not, I would say, unambiguously defeated or overcome. That will have to wait for Douglas Gordon's brilliant déjà vu more than 10 years later, uh, a work that was shown here at the Hirshhorn and which uh, I found totally compelling. In Sherman's film stills, as we have seen, this is accomplished in part through motifs of absorption, distraction, looking off scene, etc. In Wall's movie audience, it's done by depicting members of a presumably engrossed or immersed audience from a point of view that virtually assures a certain critical distance on the part of the viewer, but at the, at the same time seeks at least somewhat to entrance that viewer by means of the sheer allure of the backlit transparencies. And now I'm showing you another Sugimoto movie theater on the left and the South Bay Drive-In, San Diego, 1993 on the right. Viewed in this context, in implicit dialogue with the work of Sherman and Wall, the blank radiance of Sugimoto's movie screens presents itself as an abstract image of spectatorly fascination. Think of the shiny objects traditionally employed by hypnotists to fixate a subject's attention. While the fact that in all but the earliest movie theaters, the seats in the theater are empty, there is no audience comes to seem a brilliant figure for, very nearly a representation of, the fascinated or hypnotized, i.e. absorbed or immersed, movie audience's characteristic forgetting of itself and its position within the cinematic machine, to use Wall's term. The absence of cars in the drive-ins is at least equally powerful, equally uncanny. At the same time, however, the viewer of the movie theater and drive-in photographs is in no sense a member of the at-once present and absent movie audience. Rather, he or she stands consciously apart from, though also fairly close to the images in question, and peruses their contents in a detached or, say, disinterested manner, 
that in turn allows the complex relation to the filmic experience I've tried to describe to become available to him or her on the plane of critical or theoretical reflection. And that plane coexists with another, the plane of aesthetics, by which I mean the viewer's appreciation of the sheer beauty of Sugimoto's photographs. The trick, from my point of view, is to not let the second point of view, the point of view of beauty, entirely eclipse the first. Now, I'm perfectly aware that the reading of the classic movie theater and drive-in theater photos that I've just presented is difficult, in places obscure, and no doubt in need of further revision. And it's undeniable that Sugimoto himself has preferred to emphasize the uniqueness of his personal vision to the extent of suggesting that he first imagines a certain overall effect and only afterward actually makes the photographs that bring it about. In that sense, he implies his photographs are conceptual in origin. A certain conception or vision comes first. But even if this were known to be true, I would still want to suggest that unless Sugimoto's work is seen in relation to that of various of his peers, and unless the discussion is framed by a strong critical understanding of the issues raised by minimalism, literalism, and indeed by the entire pre-modernist and modernist pictorial tradition, we will in effect be consenting to a hermetic and simplified view of his achievement. Put another way, there's no risk of failing to be impressed by the sheer beauty of his photos. But to an unreconstructed high modernist like myself, beauty alone, think of Morris Lewis's unfurls, is only part of the story. What matters, what also matters, is a certain depth and intensity of engagement with the most pressing issues of a given historical conjuncture. And unless we approach Sugimoto's work from a comparative perspective, that depth, or as the case may be, the lack of it, is bound to remain invisible to us. That's my claim, anyway. Let me give you another instance of what this means. In 1999, Sugimoto made a series of photographs of waxwork historical personages at Madame Tussauds in London. In the first instance, Henry VIII, a figure based on Holbein's great portrait of the British monarch, and various of his wives. Catherine of Aragon, you're seeing her on the right, Anne Boleyn, and then others, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr. Of these photos, Sugimoto writes in the Hirshhorn catalog, quote, in the 16th century, Hans Holbein the Younger, Flemish court painter to the British crown, painted several imposing regal portraits of Henry VIII. Based on these portraits, the highly skilled artisans of Madame Tussauds Wax Museum created an absolutely faithful likeness of the king. Using my own studies of the Renaissance lighting by which the artist might have painted, I remade the royal portrait, substituting photography for painting. If this photograph now appears lifelike to you, perhaps you should reconsider what it means to be alive here and now, unquote. I want to say, yeah, well, okay, maybe. Though I must admit that that is the last thing the Henry VIII photos make me personally think about. But there's another broader but also deeper context in which the waxwork portraits should be seen, the context of the problem of the contemporary portrait, especially in photography. This, too, is an enormous topic. Doing it minimal justice would require two or three lectures. But I can at least sketch the basic terms of the problem. One point of entry is the Dusseldorf photographer Thomas Struth's comment to Anne Bernstein in the catalog for Struth's 2002 retrospective exhibition in Dallas and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Wonderful exhibition. And Struth says, quote, the portrait is the subject matter in photography 
where the problems of the medium are most visible, unquote. Okay? The portrait is the subject matter in photography where the problems of the medium are most visible. This is a deep remark. Bernstein continues, basing her remarks in her essay on a conversation with the artist, quote, for Struth, these problems begin with the reality of putting a person in front of a camera and the complex dynamics that take place between the sitter, the photographer, and the spectator, unquote. Struth and Bernstein between them make it sound as if the portrait has come to present special difficulties for the art photographer, and I think that's true. But it's important to recognize that something of the sort has a long history in pre-modernist painting. In mid-18th century France, at the very start of the pictorial evolution that in little more than a century would lead to Manet and modernism, the portrait was a questionable genre in the eyes of many art critics. As I remark in Absorption in Theatricality, one frequent objection was that portraiture required the exercise merely of mechanical skills rather than of the pictorial imagination. But there was, I suggest, still another source of critical misgiving. This is me in that book. The inherent theatricality of the genre. More nakedly and as it were categorically than the conventions of any other genre, those of the portrait call for exhibiting a subject, the sitter, to the public gaze. Put another way, the basic action depicted in a portrait is the sitter's presentation of himself or herself to be beheld. It follows that the portrait as a genre was singularly ill-equipped to comply with the demand that a painting negate or neutralize the presence of the beholder, i.e. that a painting defeat the risk of theatricality, a demand that became a matter of urgent concern for French art critics, and I want to say French painting during those years. I go on to show how in a few cases painters sought to overcome this limitation by depicting the sitter or sitters in a portrait as absorbed in thought or action reading, writing, listening to music, and hence unaware of being beheld. By the same token, Denis Diderot, the first great art critic and all-purpose genius, in 1767, sharply criticized Michel Van Loo's portrait of him, Diderot, for its air of coquetry, which he explained in terms of the presence in the room of the engaging Madame Van Loo while he was being painted. What would have been best, Diderot writes, would have been to leave him alone, quote, and abandon to his reverie. Then his mouth would have come open, his distracted gaze would have been focused somewhere far away, the labors of his deeply preoccupied mind would have been depicted on his face, and Michel Van Loo would have made a beautiful thing, unquote. Van Loo would have made a beautiful thing, both because the result would have been more natural, and because that superior naturalness would itself have been the product of a particular relation of the depicted sitter and ultimately the painting to the beholder to the extent that the depicted sitter appeared entirely caught up in his reverie. He also appeared unaware of being beheld, which is largely what Diderot meant when he insisted in his Entretien sur le fils naturel, a treatise on theater of 1757, on the need to treat the beholder as if he did not exist. Now, 1999, the date of the waxwork photos, is not 1757 or 1767, and yet what is so striking, astonishing really, is that the same essential problem persists, only given a new inflection and a new urgency by the objective nature of photography. For various reasons, which again, there isn't time for me to go into here, the classic absorption option, depicting figures who simply seem absorbed in what they're doing, therefore unaware in this case of being photographed, is not one that recent photographers have found artistically, or for that matter, ethically viable. 
and the brute facts of the photographic encounter between portrait subject or sitter and photographer has meant that the fiction of aloneness is also not available under ordinary circumstances. But something still can be done. So, for example, in Thomas Struth's wonderful photos of the Hiroshi family in Hiroshima of 1989 on the left, and the Smith family in Fife, also 1989, both families he had come to know well, the members of which had come to trust him, and so on. The sitters are depicted as deeply absorbed in the act of posing themselves for the photographer, of making themselves present to the camera, Struth would say. And precisely because they appear so absorbed, they themselves are often described as the ones who make the picture. They are also perceived as being wholly unaware of what I'll call the lateral relations that bind the members of each family together as a particular family group. And it's the unintended and unreflective display of those relations, the lateral relations, that makes the photographs so compelling, even moving. Commentators routinely praise Struth's family portraits for their honesty, but without understanding the internal dynamic that gives rise to that impression. Or consider the Dutch photographer, Rineke Dijkstra's, large-scale photos of pubescent youngsters in swimming costumes standing on beaches in different parts of the world. And I'm showing you Hell, Poland, August 12, 1998 on the left, and Odessa, Ukraine, August 4, 1993 on the right. In these two, the facingness and self-consciousness of the sitters could not be emphasized more strongly, no absorption in other words. At the same time, partly by virtue of the sheer scale of the images, the viewer is made almost disturbingly aware of all that escapes the control of Dijkstra's youthful subjects. All the tics, awkwardnesses, imbalances, and tensions that they manifest to the camera without the least awareness that they are doing so. Dijkstra herself has said, quote, people think that they present themselves one way, but they cannot help but show something else as well. It's impossible to have everything under control, unquote. And in hell, the photograph on the left, ah, I didn't choose the one I wanted. There was another photo that shows a mole on a girl's belly and a little Band-Aid over her navel. Unfortunately, we have a photo where the navel is covered up. In other words, even under conditions of maximum self-consciousness, which in Diderotian terms equals theatricality, Dijkstra's portraits depict, and indeed dramatize, her sitter's inevitable partial unawareness, linked to automatism, to all that escapes control, which in turn moves the image as a whole into the register of a kind of anti-theatricality, albeit an anti-theatricality that coexists with the direct address of both sitter and photo to the viewer. It's a quality I call to be seenness. So we're, what I want to, the larger claim that I, I make in a book that I'm working on right now would be that in one sense, we're still operating under a kind of representational regime or episteme that opened in the 1750s and 60s in France that cont and continues to this moment. I also want to say that there have been all sorts of dramatic twists and internal discontinuities within that, and we are now in a clearly post-minimal, post-literalist age. Um, and the, the tactics, the strategies of high modernism are no longer available as they once were. 
Other contemporary photographers whose work engages deeply but in different ways with the problem of the contemporary portrait include Thomas Ruff, Beat Stroili, Philip Lorca de Corcher, Roland Fischer, Luc Delahaye, and Patrick Fagenbaum. Not to mention, in their own way, the great teachers of most of the younger German photographers, Bernd and Hille Becher, who photograph not persons but industrial objects of various sorts. And yet, um, those photographs have something of the character of great portraits. If we now turn again to Sugimoto's waxwork portraits, and I'm showing you now Catherine Howard on the left and Catherine Parr on the right, we at once realize that their larger significance, as distinct from whatever beauty or impressiveness they may be felt to possess when considered simply on their own or as part of the present exhibition, cannot be divorced from their relation to the problem of the photographic portrait in our time, a problem which I've tried to suggest ultimately demands to be understood in relation to the anti-theatrical pictorial tradition that first arose in France roughly 250 years ago. If this were a seminar instead of a public lecture, I would now open the discussion and ask for suggestions as to how exa exactly how and in what respect you think Sugimoto's photographing of waxwork replicas of historical personages and in Henry VIII's case, a replica of that person as imaged in a famous painting, provides a kind of solution to the problem of the portrait as I have summarized it. Toward that end, I'll cite Sugimoto again from an interview with Tracy Bashkoff. Bashkoff says, tell me about the scale of the images in this series of photographs, the waxwork portraits. Your earlier series are all smaller. Sugimoto, yes, this was the first time I've made work on this scale. I was trying to make the images life-size, like the wax figures, but these seem larger than life. Bashkov, how does your format relate to traditional portrait painting? Sugimoto, all the subjects are either three-quarter views or in profile. Very few of the figures are looking at you directly. One wonders why they appear to be avoiding eye contact with the viewer. From the three-quarter view, the viewer feels as if he or she is invisible and able to investigate this powerful person without confrontation. Not looking into the eyes of someone in a different class or station, that's probably the polite thing to do, unquote. Now, I'm not sure exactly how Sugimoto means these remarks to be taken. Does he think this is true of most portraits of historical figures? In any case, the Henry VIII photos fit this description. But of course, I want to connect the claim that, quote, the viewer feels as if he or she is invisible, unquote, with something deeper, more pictorially and ontologically consequent than mere politeness or difference in social rank. And I want to link the idea of being able to, quote, quote, to investigate this powerful person without confrontation, unquote, with the all-important fact that the persons in question, the sitters for these portraits, are not living flesh and blood, but rather unliving wax, a fact that the viewer recognizes from the first, in large measure owing to both the scale of the photos and the sheer quantity of objectively recorded detail they offer to be seen. And this is, I think you'll recognize, a not entirely pleasant recognition. There's something quietly dreadful in the very idea of a wax model of a person, something deathly that these photographs uncannily communicate. Now, when I started to draft this lecture, I had hoped to discuss Sugimoto's seascapes, along with the, which, along with the movie theaters, are my personal favorites in his oeuvre, as well as his photos of burning candles taken at night with the shutter held open in an otherwise dark room. They appear in the uh, catalog, but not in the show. But it turned out that there simply wasn't time for me to do this, and instead, I want to end my talk 
by saying just a bit about Sugimoto's Sea of Buddha project, 1995. Here is Sugimoto again from the Hirshhorn catalog. And you'll see how it, in a way, comes full circle, the issues we've been dealing with. The New York art scene in the 1970s, and that was the decisive decade for the young Sugimoto, was dominated by minimal and conceptual art, experiments in visualizing abstract concepts. It occurred to me that similar motives inspired the making of art in 12th century Japan, on the face of it, an extremely unlikely claim. In a Kyoto temple, there is an 800-year-old installation of a 1,001 Senju Kanon, the thousand-armed merciful bodhisattva Avalokitesavara figures, which is a three-dimensional representation of the Buddhist afterlife, the pure land Western paradise. After seven years of red tape, I was finally granted permission to photograph in the temple of San Juzangendo, the hall of 33 bays. In special preparation for the shoot, I had all late medieval and early modern embellishments removed, and the contemporary fluorescent lighting was turned off. Stripping the temple of these additions recreated the splendor of the thousand bodhisattvas glistening in the light of the sun, rising over the Higashiyama hills, perhaps as the Kyoto aristocracy of the Heian period might have seen them. Will today's conceptual art survive another 800 years? And I just show you three more of these. Even more than the seascapes, this is me again, the 33 photos of the 1,001 nearly identical Buddhas, one photo for each bay, evoke the minimalist structural mantra of one thing after another, quoted earlier by Nancy Spector. But if we look closely and, above all, comparatively at the photos, the often very slight but nevertheless clearly discernible differences between the Buddhas, both within individual photos and from one photo to the next, comparing Buddha's positions similarly in the two images, militate against the idea of mere repetition, mere abstract sequence, mere one thing after another. In other words, the Buddha photographs allude to minimalism, literalism, without succumbing to theatricality. In fact, I would even say that the very obviousness with which they allude to minimalist repetition makes the fact of universal difference, hence non-repetition, all the more emphatic in the end. And this, in turn, is to say that in the end, I take the aesthetic of the Buddha photographs to be closer to the one I associate with high modernism in art and objecthood than to the thought and practice of Judd Morris Andre et al. On the other hand, there can be no doubt that their installation in the present exhibition, which makes of the Buddha photos a single laterally continuous image, and moreover installs it in a dark passage while lighting it dramatically, I would even say theatrically, makes such comparative seeing all but impossible. For one thing, the seams between the individual photos are almost impossible to make out. More broadly, the present exhibition, with its dimmed room illumination and artful spotlighting of individual photos, tends both to dematerialize and to theatricalize Sugimoto's oeuvre. This is especially vivid in the case of the seascapes, which give the impression of being transparencies lit from behind, but they aren't, they're opaque, but the way they're spotted in the dark room makes them seem to glow from within. So that between my reading of Sugimoto's pictures and Sugimoto's own preferences, and I take the installation of this exhibition very much to represent Sugimoto's own preferences with respect to self-representation, as far as mise-en-scene is concerned. 
there is at least a tension, at most an outright contradiction, that the viewer is left to negotiate as best he or she can. In other words, I think this is a spectacular, magnificent exhibition, but it's also one that makes a certain kind of critical historical take on Sugimoto, and in particular on individual photos, very hard to achieve. I'm absolutely confident that that's the way Sugimoto likes it, but we should be aware that that's what's going on. I've come almost to the end of my time, but I want to close this talk by showing a video Sugimoto made on the basis of his 33 Buddha photos. The video is called Instantaneous Buddha, and it runs for just over five minutes. My point in showing it is to make a further point about the basically anti-minimalist literalist character of his art. The crucial issue in this case concerns modes of temporality. And my point is or will be that although issues of time and temporality are immensely important to Sugimoto, there remains a fundamental difference between the minimalist literalist emphasis on sheer duration going on and on endlessly, and the vision of time speeding up and in a sense coming to an end, a climax, that we're going to find in instantaneous Buddha. And here I would simply recall what I said about the role of quasi-instantaneousness and high modernism in art and objecthood. I'll also ask you to notice in advance the slight jiggling up and down and back and forth that will highlight multiple differences among the Buddhas as the images speed up. More broadly, issues of time and temporality play a major role in Tsugamoto's art, but even his concern in the dioramas and the seascapes with the idea of remote prehistory before the advent of human beings and the invention of language is in the end at odds with the minimalist literalist project with its present tensism and its ongoingness. At any rate, here is the video. That's really it. You've just seen a deeply anti-minimalist, anti-literalist artifact. Thanks for your attention.